guiding the people that he's talking to, to, to do something new, to reorient their lives towards the kingdom, and that that will be new for them. That he is both challenging and inviting them to a new life. And that's what happens when we follow Christ. We are constantly being invited and challenged to make decisions based on our allegiance to Jesus. And that's good. And so the decision that I made to move here was based on my allegiance to Jesus. The different things that happen in the church in Ephesus, it turns their world upside down. And the reason that they do it is because of their allegiance to Jesus. And when we do those things, they're good. When we orient our lives, when we shift our values, when we make decisions based on our allegiance to Jesus, it's good. But as Johnny said last week, it can get us into trouble. So we're going to look at how these folks in Ephesus, how their decisions kind of caused some trouble. So you can look with me at Acts chapter 19, but first let's pray together. Jesus, um, we acknowledge that your resurrection changes everything. That there is a new life that you offer us as we put our trust in you and in offering us that new life, you ask for our allegiance. And that because of that, our values, what we do, who we are, what we say, what we're about is going to be aligned with you and that may look different. And so I pray this morning that as we look at this church in Ephesus, we would, you would shine a light on our own lives. And that you would call us into a deeper allegiance to you. That our lives as a community, Missio Day here in Salt Lake City, would reflect what it means to be related to you. And so Spirit, would you move and call us into deeper places of trust and faith? Would you quiet our doubts? Would you bring peace? And would you ground us? In the truth of who you are. We pray in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. And as I said, Paul is traveling around um, Asia Minor and he lands himself in Ephesus. And usually the first place that Paul would go is he would go and talk to people about Jesus would be the synagogue. So let's look together. We'll first go to chapter 19 and verse 8. And he, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. So here you have Paul. He goes into the synagogue, predominantly Jewish, talks about the kingdom of God. They don't, they're not persuaded necessarily. This kind of trouble that is happening is he talks about the kingdom of Jesus. And so he withdraws and he goes to a local lecture hall. 
So now he goes into the environment of the Greeks and he's like, okay, I'm going to persuade and I'm going to talk to this whole, not just those who are in the religious synagogue, but also I'm going to go into this lecture hall. Basically, he goes up to the U of U and he's like, hey, do you mind if I take over one of these little auditoriums? I've got some things to say. And the dude's like, sure, I have a little nap in the afternoon. You can use my hall. And so as that professor goes and takes his nap, Paul gets up and he starts talking about the kingdom of God. And he's persuading them that they should give their allegiance to Jesus, not to Caesar. No longer being um, like this newness that is coming out of the Old Testament and the New Testament in the form of Jesus. He's asking them to align themselves to this Jesus that he speaks of. And he does it for two years. And what happens? All over the residents heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul's not messing about. He wants them to know about this kingdom. And so what is he saying? What is the kingdom of God? And it's the good news. The good news that Jesus is king. And he's asking these people to entrust themselves to King Jesus. The same way that we are encouraged to entrust ourselves to him, to his rule and his reign and his authority over us, not just individually, but as a collective of people. So forms the church in Ephesus who submit to King Jesus. So forms the church in Salt Lake City that gives our allegiance to King Jesus. And as Johnny said last week, like as the people of Jesus, we begin to live by this new rule or rubric. And it's how do I submit myself then to King Jesus? How do I do it in such a way that follows the law of love? And we enter into the good work that God is doing as we submit to him and live out of the values that he infuses into us as we stay connected to him and to his people. And we declare the true story of what it means to live related to him. And so as the people did that in the early church, specifically the Acts, they became known as the people of the way. You heard that twice the people of the way, because they lived with a strikingly different system. They were distinguishable and they began to stand out both from the Roman kind of way of doing things and from the Jewish way of doing things. So they're like, there's these new kind of weird folks. They follow the way. It's a different way and it was disruptive. We're going to jump down um, to verse 23 and look at what happens with a gentleman called Demetrius. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The people of Jesus, those submitted to King Jesus, suddenly now there is a disturbance concerning these people of the way. Some good trouble about to go down. So let's keep reading. Verse 24. It's quite a long story, so story time. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
These he gathered together with the workmen in a similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but, all, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that, God made, that God's made with hands are not God's. And there is a danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be de- deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travels. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, that's the leadership of that town, of that city, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hands, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 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 That's probably like not even a minute. Two hours. It's a massive crowd. What are they yelling? <laughs> You're not willing to roll with me. Come on, people. Yes, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Serious disturbance. Got themselves into some good trouble, apparently. So Demetrius, the silversmith, brings his people around him, and he says, hey, yo, this Paul, he's had some words, and our livelihood is at stake. And not only our livelihood, but also Artemis may end up being seen and perceived as nothing. And in saying that, he kind of incites this mob mentality that then takes this crew of people into the theater, and they start screaming, because of this threat that Demetrius has unearthed in front of them. His comments bring some serious fear and anxiety, right? It can't be a small thing if this is what happens over the course of the next two hours. There is fear and there is anxiety. And I think in order to understand this, we need some context for Artemis in this temple. So this temple is situated in one of the largest and most important cities in the ancient world, Ephesus. And it's specifically for trade and commerce. So when you hear of it, you like what you're trying to think of is like New York or Tokyo or London. Really influential and really important city at that time. And the temple of Artemis of Ephesus was this beautiful, like, huge 
um, sizable building right on the ocean, so it kind of had this mesmerizing look to it, and also became known as one of the seven wonders of the world. So it's a significant location in the ancient world. It's one of the oldest financial institutions in the world. There was a banking system that was formed there because there was so much trade and commerce that was happening in that location. And the annual celebrations around Artemis brought in an enormous amount of money. And so it was civically organized. The city itself helped to organize it because it was good for business. People from all over the world came to this temple and there was big business that happened there. And so these statues that Demetrius is talking about, we're like, how, what? These little silver statues? Like, what about that is significant or lucrative? Um, because we don't really have the idea of little tiny statues, right, in our culture. But there's a historian by the name of Guy Rogers, and he says this about this moment in this um, city with these statues. People in the ancient world made vows to gods to achieve specific, well-defined short-term goals, such as avoiding illness, ensuring a bountiful harvest, completing a voyage safely, getting rich, or attracting a desirable lover. If the goal was realized, the person who made the vow dedicated a statue or an inscription to the god to pay off the vow. The notion was, I give so that I might be given. And it was a reciprocal relationship of trust that might lead to their favor. So it's this picture of this person wanting something and then making a vow to this god, in this case Artemis. And so in order to be able to come true on these, these vows or on asking for this or on pleading for it, then you devote this silver to the God, either in gratitude or in earnest asking. And so these statues were a part of everyday life. I was trying to think of something, maybe like coffee, right? It's just part of everyday life. What do you do in the morning? I'm just going to throw down $5. I'm going to get my latte. I'm going to have a little drinky drink. And then I'm going to feel good when I sit in class. Or I'm going to make it through the day. Or I'm going to be okay with my, um, the energy that I need for my children. You name it, right? So for us, it just seems like what, what a crazy thing. And for them, no, it's just like a part of everyday life. That someone's making bank off this. Namely, in this moment, Demetrius, not Starbucks, Right? No indictment on Starbucks. Please don't hear me saying that at all. Just trying to give you a relevant illustration. But these statues are a part of everyday life. And the teaching from Paul about the kingdom actually challenged this practice because it wasn't just about a normal everyday activity. It was about an act of worship and devotion and trust. And so as Paul is in there at this kind of university location, he's not teaching a set of propositions. He's inviting these people to a new way of life. And as they hear it, they act. And it leads to change, which is upsetting the norm of this city. And it's disruptive to the point where um, these folks' income is at stake. 
And they feel worried and anxious because their financial situation is threatened. And let's be real, security is like a natural and reasonable thing to want. It's reasonable. But in this moment, it's not about having it, it's about putting their faith and trust in it. So in this moment, for Demetrius and these people, money is security. Or it's belief that they can find security in the certainty of it. And so when that certainty is questioned, it whips them up into this frenzy, and they get anxious, and they start yelling for a couple of hours, which seems crazy, right? But it's not that crazy. Because I think that it is what we are told too. There's a cultural lens that we look through that security can be found in financial certainty. That's a value that our culture tells us. And we could go so far as to say in our culture that our value is tied to the level of financial certainty that we have. Like that our actually intrinsic sense of value, our existential well-being is tied to the level of financial certainty that we have. We're told that consistently. And in America, the salary indicates value and worth. Again, it's just part of how it works. You're valuable, you get paid more. You do a good job, you get paid more. That person makes this much, they must be more impressive. They must have greater talents. They are more valuable because they are paid more. That's the system that we work within. The value system. And we can get fearful and anxious. We don't feel as valuable as others kind of feel a little ashamed about where my bottom line is. I feel ashamed about how much debt I have. I feel ashamed about how much money I bring in. We become self-protective. We become controlling. And money has the capacity to create a great deal of worry and anxiety in us too. And we become a bit reactionary. We tend towards two extremes in this value system that we live in, especially sometimes as followers of Jesus. We get into these two extremes. Money is bad. Right? It's this value system. It's like this rat race. I can't get get a handle of it. And so what I'm going to determine is that money is bad or that it's dirty. And I just need to get away from it. And so we kind of take this mindset that becomes like a reckless self-sacrifice. Dude, I just actually need to give it all away. That's the extreme over here. But then the opposite extreme is that we buy into this value system and we're like, oh yeah, like how much money does actually determine my value? That's true. And so we enact that value with self-preservation or self-protection, or we become self-serving with our money. I earned it, I'm going to keep it, I'm going to do what I want with it. 
That's the other extreme over here, like the self-serving, self-preserving, or the kind of reckless self-sacrificing. Because in some ways we don't know what to do with this value that is pressing itself onto us consistently. And so we get a bit reactionary too. And in those extremes or versions, we can begin to feel a little crazy, anxious, uncertain, a bit judgy. But it's not about extremes. That's not what is is being like narrated out of this story. It's about learning to make intentional choices informed by Jesus. Not buying statues was an intentional choice. But often, instead of making intentional choices, We let our relationship with money make decisions for us. Whether it's a healthy or an unhealthy relationship, that's kind of what drives the intentionality or the non-intentionality or the reactionary decisions that we end up making around this value system that we consistently live in. Sometimes it's the value system that we grew up with and we're, re- we're reacting out of it or we're letting it determine our choices. But in the kingdom of Jesus, money isn't where we are asked to put our faith and trust. Money is not the indicator of value, how much or how little we have. Money is not where we find our ultimate source of security. And that's the kind of kingdom reality that Jesus wants to breathe over us so we have freedom. Freedom from that anxiety and freedom from that stress, freedom from that pressure, freedom from those fears and that shame. He wants to say, that's not the value system I'm working with. How much you have or how little you have doesn't determine your value. It's not the place of your security. It's an invitation to freedom. Freedom to choose, make intentional choices based on the values of the kingdom. Which values are you letting drive your decisions? Are you free? We are free to make intentional choices, but how we make those choices is very, very, very important. Let's continue reading. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. 
For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So you have the town clerk. He stands up in the midst of this crowd and he is um, just kind of overseeing this community. Like it's his job to take care of this. And so he stands up and he's like, seriously people, you're all whipped up in a frenzy and you need to calm it. And then he really rationalizes with them. He's like, nobody's forgetting the significance of Ephesus. It's all right. It's all right. And then he says, if you have a legitimate claim against these people, use the legitimate protocols. The courts are open. If they've done something, there's a process, and you are more than welcome to take them through that process. And then he says, and this whole situation, you yelling your brains out for two hours, this is nonsense. And Rome is probably going to come in and like charge us for rioting. So peace to everyone. There's the doors. Thanks for this moment. You know what to do from here on out. Thank you, town clerk, getting everything sorted out. But I want us to pay attention to verse 37. Something that he says about the people of the way, the people who are submitted to King Jesus. This is what he says about them. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. Artemis statue making was a normal part of life. And the kingdom of Jesus has disrupted that as a normal part of life, but it is not coercive or excessive. They're not smashing these um, statues. They're not like throwing them into the sea. All they do is stop buying them. They just stop spending. They're going to spend their money on something different. There's nothing disrespectful. There's nothing irreverent. They're not mocking. They're not holding this community into contempt. And there's no ridicule. And that has its own effect on the situation. It has a calming effect. A peaceful effect. Because what these people are doing isn't, as he says, sacrilegious or blasphemous. And if we look at 1 Peter 2.12, it tells us how kingdom people are supposed to act in moments like this, exactly what is happening here in Acts. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your behavior honorable. Um, Eugene Peterson says it this way in the next slide. Friends, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't live under the value systems that are around you. This isn't your home. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. 
Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. So while we may not align ourselves with the values that we find ourselves in, that is not an invitation to act with contempt or with disrespect. Learning the values of the kingdom means we will end up doing things different but in a way that is good. So that we are both disruptive and honorable. We can never say no to the values of the kingdom in a way that denigrates people. Never. As the people of Jesus. As those who are under the rule of the kingdom of Jesus, we do not have the luxury of being against people. But we do have to learn to be aware of where our allegiance lies. So when money calls for our allegiance, what do we say? No. When value and identity and security find their home in money, what do we say? No. And I think the big question that we have to ask ourselves as people sitting in a room where that value system is pressing onto us, how do we do that? How do we say no? Well, that's the question that you have to ask yourself. It's not obvious. There's not one answer for everyone in this room. It requires prayer requires understanding the values of the kingdom. It requires understanding where your heart and your mind and yourself is misaligned from the values of King Jesus. And so maybe it would mean that you take a job that pays more so that you can care for those around you. It may mean that you take a job that pays less so that you have more time for those around you. It may mean that you save. You save a lot of money. Or it may mean that you give all like large amounts of money away. It may just mean that you take your paid vacation time even when nobody else in the office is willing to do it. It may mean that you ask to work part-time. It may mean that you actually only clock those 50 hours that are expected of you. It may mean that you provide a generous gift to somebody it may mean that you're willing to receive a generous gift from somebody. I don't know what it would mean for you to live out of a different value system, but what I do know is that Jesus wants you to be free to do so. And in order to do so, you have to attend to him. 
You have to attend to what it is that he is saying about the values of his kingdom and you have to attend to the way his spirit would move in you so that you could disrupt the world that you're in and maybe cause some good trouble. And we do these things, we do these disruptive acts for ourselves, but we also do them for the people around us. The people that we work with the community that's around us, for each other here at Missio. Because these small acts declare that we believe something else. You can see it in my choices. Creating a different way, a new way, something that looks a little peculiar. And when we live in a culture that deems money the place of security or the seat of value, our small acts can disrupt that. And to disrupt is to reveal that it doesn't have to be normal. It means to practice something differently. And it may seem insignificant, but it reveals, it becomes a revealer of where our allegiance lies to another kingdom, a kingdom that has the power to turn the world upside down and offer freedom, a freedom that we all need to live within so that we don't live under the anxiety and the pressure and the questioning of our value and identity. That's not freedom. It's not the freedom that the kingdom of Jesus is offering. But those small acts can be hard to do requires self-awareness. Like I said, it requires an attentiveness to Jesus and a willingness to change. It requires community that we do this together. So it may be that you just need to bust out your budget in front of somebody. I don't actually even know what I'm doing with money. I have no idea. That's okay. Ask somebody to help you. We should be able to know what each other brings in. We should actually know those kinds of things about each other so that we can say, yes, I affirm that's a wise choice. That sounds like you're submitted to Jesus. Yes, going and taking that job that's going to bring this much more money into your household, we applaud that. That's a great idea. It makes sense that you would ask for that time off. We stand with you as you do that in this environment where nobody does that. We're with you. It's an invitation that we would disrupt together what is pressed on us as a norm and a value that we need to say no to. And so we're invited to practice things differently in order to make good trouble. And so as you come to this table today, It's a table where you acknowledge your allegiance. That Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed in order to be able to renew and give us new life. And as we entrust ourselves to him, we live into that new life that he is asking us to live into that is his kingdom. And so as you come to this table, it might be a moment of confession. This is an area where I don't even know how to do that. I'm lost. 
It may be an area where you give gratitude because you feel like Christ has moved you some significant steps as it relates to this area of your life. Come to this table and as you eat this bread and wine, taste your value. That you are significant, not because of a dollar sign around you, but because who he names you. As part of his family. As one that belongs in a community of people that are his. An acknowledgement of who you give your allegiance to as you come to this table. And then there'll be people over here to pray. And I think many of us need healing here. Healing from old family narratives that have been spoken over us. Healing from narratives that we've received from culture. Healing from a narrative that you have to live in every single day at your workplace. If you need healing and freedom from that, there are going to be people right here who would be willing to pray for you. To awaken you to a new set of values that you might be able to start living into. And that is a gift of grace. Come for prayer to receive healing and freedom and creativity. Because as the kingdom people of Jesus, we should be the most creative. We're not going to smash statues. We're not going to be disrespectful. We're going to be honorable in a way that points to the one that we serve. The one who offers us value and significance and identity outside of the systems that we live within. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your people. And I thank you that you will not stop inviting and challenging us to live into the values that are your kingdom. That you ask us to give our allegiance to you. And in giving our allegiance to you, we submit ourselves to you. Not because you want to control us or because you demand things from us in a punitive way, but because you want our freedom. You want us to understand life and to understand what it means to have grace and abundance and value that isn't tied in this specific way to a paycheck or to a dollar amount. And so, Lord, I pray that, um, yeah, we don't know. I don't know what everybody's response to you could be this morning. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would ask something of each of us. One small disruptive step. And that we would be faithful to hear you and follow you for our good, for the good of this community and for the good of this city. So heal us and free us. And give us a creative imagination. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.